In 2012, Michael Carter Jr. got on an airplane to Ghana with his four sons. The plan was to leave his home in Orange County, Virginia for good. You know, I left home looking for home, looking for a foundation, and I found it in Orange County and <laughs> my family farms. He came back from Ghana deeply curious about the family farm in his hometown. And then, yeah, this is 150 acres approximately from the road to the back here. And it's a, um, been on our family since November 5th, 1910. Now, he's even learning from the weeds. And kind of how we approach things, like now that's why I can grow out weeds, because the weeds tell a story. The weeds show a story. The weeds educate me just as much as I want to get rid of them. And just like the West African crops he grows on his land now, the weeds have a lot to teach. Uh, and I utilize these as kind of metaphors for life. A lot of us find ourselves in different environments. These are African plants. They weren't here when my great-grandmother was here. But you see how they're thriving? With no attention to detail at all, they've, they've adapted to this environment just like the African-American has. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm producer Lauren Francis, sitting in for Sarah McConnell. This week, we're setting the holiday table for gatherings with loved ones and celebrating a year well-lived. On his fifth-generation farm in Orange County, Michael Carter Jr. is focused on growing West African crops and Black farmers. So, you actually didn't really mean to be here in America today. <laughs> today, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You left for Ghana in 2012, mm -hmm. and then you came back in 2017. What mm -hmm. brought you back? Family. The children, they needed to see their aunts, uncles, and, mm -hmm. and it made me appreciate a whole lot more of being home. Mm -hmm. You know, I left home looking for home, looking for a foundation, and I found it in Orange County and <laughs> my family farms. Like, oh. Tell me about what was that like to come back to Orange after your time in Ghana? You were seeing it much differently then, I imagine. I saw it a little differently. I, I went, I spent a lot more time in the courthouse, looking at old records, trying to pay attention to the street names and their relationship to our family or family history or these historical realities. I came back with a, a historical lens. I'm not coming back here as a lost son. I'm coming back here as someone who's going to tell the story of those ancestors who, you know, time has forgotten mm -hmm. that we didn't really put a value on. So I came here with a mission and a purpose, and that purpose was really to tell those stories. Um, and that, you know, ultimately shown its way really through plants and the farm because that helped people see how this history fits with our present-day reality in terms of agriculture, where you buy your food from, how you buy your food, how you eat your food, how much you pay for your food. Probably the most common thing I hear and probably the most com complimentary thing I hear is, I never saw it like that. Mm -hmm. I never knew that. Mm -hmm. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so your time in Ghana mm -hmm. deeply influenced what you came back home and grew. Tell me about uh, some of what you're growing. Besides myself uh, and my children. <laughs> Because that was the first thing that I started to grow was myself. Um, mm. And I say that in a larger context. In Ghana, I got a chance to actually be black, fully expressive as a black male. So I'm arguing with the police. I'm, you know, I'm... <laughs> a real delight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like I'm actually able to, you know, express my anger, my feelings, my emotions, as opposed mm -hmm. to constantly suppressing them for the sake of backlash. Mm -hmm. So that was a whole thing. But then as those emotions arose, I found myself getting angry and angry over little things. So then I started to, when I got angry, there was a coconut tree in the backyard, I would hug it. Mm. So that became a point of therapy for me. I became a tree hugger. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and it really, you know, it brought my blood pressure down, my, my heart rate down when I was angry, when I was frustrated with certain things. And I started to spend more time reading about nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and studying and then talking to the, um, the indigenous people there, the local people. So I was in Winchy at one point in like the bread basket of Ghana. This is when I first got introduced to the cashew. And so I was growing on a, know, a thousand acre plantation. And we were growing sorghum, corn, and then he had 10 hot tunnels that he was doing sweet potato production. And we were also doing cowpea production for seeds. So I got a chance to, you know, get introduced to the cowpeas and, and like, Okay, you call it cowpeas, but that's just a black IP. Hmm. <laughs> so then you started mm -hmm. to explore the history of this and, and, and start to understand the relationship a little bit anyway between the cowpea and the African in America 
And then it's relationship culturally because that's the first thing we eat New Year's Day. Mm-hmm. Black eyed peas and generally stewed tomatoes. Mm-hmm. And this dish together in Ghana, there is a similar dish with black eyed peas, palm oil, maybe some tomatoes in it, and then plantains. And they call it red red. Hmm. The most outstanding bean dish you ever have in your life. Mm. By far. So you started to look at those type of histories and connections between what we were doing then, what we were doing there. Also, at that particular farm in Winchy, my security men would chew on these nuts, cola nuts, mm-hmm. to, to keep them up at night when they were doing security. The correlation came, okay, those are cola nuts. That's from the Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. So the cola nut that's from West Africa contributed to another aspect of Western culture. Mm-hmm. You know, what is America without Coca-Cola? Mm-hmm. And you're looking at, okay, Ivory Coast and Ghana, they produce 75% of the world's cocoa. Mm-hmm. While working there, you know, I, I was on radio mm-hmm. with an individual. Uh, we were just talking about some of the events of the day. I would be on there with another professor from um, UCC, University of Cape Coast. And I remember very poignantly, he talked about chocolate and how it was such a minimal plant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just this little confectionery dessert thing doesn't even have any value. And I'm like, do you understand that chocolate runs America? That chocolate <laughs> is in every freaking gas station, house, school, vending machine, grocery store in America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you're saying this is, no, you need to put more value to it. Anyway, so I started to get much more in tune with this nature. And the first three or four farms I was growing at was growing mainly American crops mm-hmm. for the diaspora community. And diaspora community meaning the uh, embassies, the African-Americans that were there, the British, Ghanaians, all the people that came from foreign countries would grow for them. Uh, and right before I left, we mm-hmm. started the first organic market, probably in Ghana, but definitely in Cape Coast, building up people's awareness about where the food was coming from. Mm-hmm. And, but in those processes, I was uh, being taught by usually people that work for me mm-hmm. about some of the local and indigenous crops. And this was another psychological reality that I had to, you know, had me tripping, had me, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. was, there was so much talent, but the value on that talent because of the nature is just not putting the same respects as how we value things here. Mm-hmm. But the talent was amazing. So when I came back here, I took a lot of, some of those principles anyway and said, okay, one, I need to put a lot more value in these foods. Mm-hmm. But two, the crops that I was growing, I'm growing for a real specialty niche market. So when I got here, like, I don't see any of the African vegetables that I know. I don't see the incotumeri or the taro leaf. I don't see the boma leaf or the Nigerian or the amaranth. I don't see those things. Mm-hmm. And as I started to do more research with those, again, I started to, um, they started to teach me about themselves, about their benefits, about things, how mm-hmm. I should be seeing them in this environment. So the then plants I started, were teaching you this. Yeah, they were, they were teaching me through the weeds and through themselves about how they were growing. We saw the Nigerian spinach at the farm. It's like, they said, I don't need your freaking irrigation. Right. (laughs) Yeah, because I noticed there was the drip irrigation tape in the rows, but you said y'all don't even use Mm -hmm. that. I took it off. Um, I'm changing the whole tape because I want to see how they survive. And they're Mm -hmm. they're not just surviving, Mm -hmm. they're thriving. And it's, you know, to me, very much reminiscent of our experiences in America. Part and parcel to what my great-great-grandparents did in that whole community. Mm -hmm. When they started Freetown, when they bought these lands, they started to thrive. Mm -hmm. Take your foot off the neck, take the seed and plant it. And then nature's going to take its court and it's going to grow up and grow out. And there's going to be pollinators there. There's going to be partners there. Mm. There's going to be things we see in the foundation of things in terms of values for each other, supporting other plants to grow up, other people to grow up, other businesses to grow up. That's going to be highly supportive. And this is all part of this natural nature classroom. I think most of, most of us at this time are suffering from a nature deficit disorder. Mm-hmm. We, we don't spend enough time in nature, listening to nature mm-hmm. and understanding nature. What is Africulture? You refer right. <laughs> to a lot of your work under the umbrella of Africulture. Africulture is our nonprofit, but it's also principles, practices, plants, people, and now policies of, that have affected Africans or, or African descent uh, that have affected or contributed to agriculture worldwide. You know, I've been African-American most of my life. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> when we think about agriculture and African-Americans, usually the first thing that comes to our mind is slavery. Right. You know, you would hear something like, I would hear something like, when I was growing up, get your cotton picking hands off of that. Mm. Cotton picking hand was not a compliment. Right. Mm-hmm. But many of us don't know that, you know, cotton was an African crop. Mm-hmm. So it is African crop. Uh, and that so many of these African crops help build America and American agriculture, and ultimately America itself. And if we have a better understanding of 
those crops that contributed to it and those individuals who contributed to it, the genius that they brought here. They didn't just capture enslaved Africans. They captured enslaved African genius. Hmm. And this genius, this level of engineering prowess, of agricultural prowess, of medical prowess, artistic prowess, mm-hmm. poetic prowess, you know, mathematical prowess, astrological prowess, all of these uh-huh. geniuses that were born here under this moniker of slave. Mm-hmm. They kind of tied all these people together as one, okay, you're a slave, even though you're an engineer and you built some of the roads on this particular property mm-hmm. that are so well constructed that dump trucks to this day can still drive through it without anything happening to it. These very, mm-hmm. They aren't paved. They aren't, they're constructed by African genius. And everyone has benefited, who's been on this property has benefited from this genius. Yet no one credits the genius or understands or appreciates the genius that was brought here. You know, agriculture kind of really wants to lift up the genius of these ancestors, these plants, these principles, these practices, that without them, our world would not be the same. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that part of agriculture is growing people, growing farmers. Tell me about that. In 1900, the turn of the century, Virginia had approximately 25,000 black farmers. By 1925, the number had rose to 50,000 black farmers in the state of Virginia, the most in the country. And both times, 1900, 1950, mm-hmm. 1925, I'm sorry. And in that process till today, 2017, the last U.S. ag census that was taken, we're down to approximately 1,333 wow. black farmers. So we've seen a 98% decline in black farmers. And from my personal perspective, black farmers and indigenous farmers are essential to America. They've saved America countless times, both the nation and the industry. Uh, and what's the nation without the food that it eats? And I won't say I'm a, a soothsayer or a prophet, but I just foresee a need for more black farmers to kind of prevent uh, the elements of climate change or AI robots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the reality of growing this food and really reconnecting individuals back to their natural nature. Mm. So you've been back now from Ghana for about six years. Um, And in that time, you've been doing amazing things on the land that's been in your family for five generations now. But before all of that homecoming, (laughs) you had never even really walked that land. Tell me about that first time coming back from Ghana and walking that land. Hmm. The first time I was with my cousin Gary. Uh, I was on the back side of the property. I just walked around the stream, and I was just walking and just observing, and feeling so robbed for mm-hmm. not having had his, not having explored his experience as a youngster. Mm-hmm. And again, it gave me a different level of appreciation for my family and the sacrifices they made to acquire the land and to keep the land. Mm-hmm. They saw something much greater than them, and I'm always appreciative of that vision because it, it grew me, it created me. But then it created so many different generations before me. So when I'm walking through that land, I'm always thinking about how do you add to it? Mm. Before I leave this plane, I need to make sure I add something to this. An acre, two acres, 10 acres, 50 acres. Uh, And the first thing I'm doing is growing farmers. And then from there, I can add some more (laughs) (laughs) acres to the land. Mm. Yeah. Do your kids farm? They have a seed company called Carter Brothers, uh, carterbrothers.net, shameless plug. (laughs) (laughs) they've been all over the farm. I've taken them on tours. I've taken them all around. We've walked all over here, there, and everywhere because I wanted to make sure they had what I didn't experience. My my youngest son, um, when he gets out there, he just disappears. Beautiful. You know, and, you know, I'm like, okay, he's at home. I'm not, I can't even be mad at that. Or Mm -hmm. he just sits in a a pothole and plays in the mud. Oh, yes. You know, and it's like, okay, he feels at home. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not even a question that this is not his home. Michael Carter Jr. is a fifth-generation farmer based in Orange County, Virginia, where he is developing his concept of agriculture. Just an hour west of Carter Family Farms, associate producer Matt Darrow and I stopped by Commonwealth Crush in Waynesboro, Virginia. We met up with Lee Campbell. Lee is a celebrated sommelier with over 25 years of experience in New York's wine scene. Now... She works exclusively with Virginia Fruits at Commonwealth Crush. Commonwealth Crush bottles their own wines, helps others accomplish their wine dreams, and serves as an incubator for aspiring wine producers. 
Commonwealth Crush is very different from many other Virginia wineries. For one thing, it does not sit on a vineyard. Tell me about Commonwealth Crush and what makes it so unique. We are a winery, custom crush facility, and incubator. So winery, we make wine under the Commonwealth Crush label. Custom crush facility means that people can basically hire us to make wines for them. So say you don't have grapes, you Mm -hmm. don't have a winery, but you still want to start a wine brand. Well, we would help you source grapes. You could hire us as the winemakers, us as the winery, and we could make your wine for you. Or maybe another model is that you have vineyards, but you don't want to build a winery. Mm. Then we would step in and help you with that from the grapes on. And then um, last and not least, because we're very excited about this, we have something called the Incubator Program, which is a program that we created to steward brand new labels, brand new companies, and bring people into the production side. As a Black American sommelier, I have been watching the evolution of the wine industry for the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. And especially in the last five or 10 years, we've seen really beautiful diversification in terms of drinking wine, but also on sort of the sales, distribution, promotion, influencer, sommelier side. Where we're still lagging behind is on the production winemaking side. So uh, our incubator is hoping to help level the playing field a little bit, bring new voices into winemaking, and we will start by stewarding two new wine brands a year. Very exciting. Mm -hmm. So Commonwealth Crush, you all are really well located Mm -hmm. um, up there in the Shenandoah Valley, right off of 81 and 64, which I feel like gives you really good access to all the fruits. That's right. And that that was exactly the idea, is we are primarily focused on valley fruit, Shenandoah Mm -hmm. Valley fruit. It's something that we're just very passionate about. We love the terroir over there. We feel that the balance of flavors in valley fruit is uh, just really exciting and energetic. The acidity is always really bright. The grapes tend to be very fresh. And so situated right there, but not too far from all the other places in Virginia Mm -hmm. as well, if we'd like to source. Now, we do exclusively work with Virginia State Fruit. We're Virginia winemakers. We only make Virginia wine. What is so unique about Virginia wine? Well, I think Virginia, it's really tied, I think, to the memory of America. You know, when we think of so many of the founding fathers having lived and worked in Virginia, I think that there's just like a really interesting historical link between this area and sort of the origins of America. Now, what's interesting about wine in Virginia is that there was a lot of starts and stops. And so, you know, even though the colonial settlers had initially tried to plant some grapes, they were not successful um, in terms of having a crop. And it wasn't until like the 60s and the 70s that we started to see sort of another resurgence. Wow. Um, so even though people started kind of kind of planting through the, let's say, 50s and the 60s and 70s, and, and certainly with some hybrids and things like that, it wasn't until the 1970s when the founders and owners of a vineyard site called Barbersville came from Italy and in earnest really started to plant European grape varieties, a lot of Italian grape varieties because they were from northern Italy. The modern Virginia industry kind of can trace itself to the 1970s when um, the Zonin family came from Italy and started planting vines. Why do you think that Virginia wines have gained more popularity than other Southern wines? I mean, I think it's really, um, in some ways, logistics. I think it's uh, resources. You know, Virginia is a pretty bougie state, and (laughs) um, people have the resources to take on these ventures. You know, we sort of have these natural marketplaces in in Washington, D.C., in Richmond. You know, Charlottesville has always been sort of a foodie paradise. You know, for a long time, Virginia really didn't have to sell wines anywhere else. People love the wines here. I've never seen so many people so proud of their own local wines in the United States outside of the, you know, Napa, Sonoma, you know, Oregon sort of um, area. So people have just been really excited about these wines internally. And so now the challenge is trying to get, uh, you know, trying to get out the news that we are making really good, high quality wines here. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what we're working on right now. Is Virginia respected in the larger wine world domestically or internationally? You know, I don't know if we are quite at the 
point where we can really speak internationally. Now, mm-hmm. I did recently meet somebody who told me that her father imports Virginia wines into Europe. And, oh, wow. Um, so I know someone exists, and I haven't met him yet, and I'm looking <laughs> forward to it. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I had really, you know, heard of that. Um, but I think right now the heavy lifting will be to just do it domestically and to have people take us seriously in places like New York, in places like California, mm-hmm. especially places that have their own vineyards, um, to say that, look, you can drink, you know, in San Francisco and Los Angeles, you can drink all the Napa and Sonoma you want, and these are great wines. But the rest of America is also making wines, and they're worthy, and we need to start considering them. So I think now in all of these other states, we have to figure out what's appropriate. In Virginia, we found out that there are certain European grapes that do pretty well for us. Cap Franc does really well for us. Cap Sauvignon, not so well. Um, Chardonnay does really well here. For a long time, Viognier was really hot, uh, which is a French grape. But Viognier has sort of fallen a little bit out of favor. And we're bringing in a grape called Petit Mansang, which is another French grape, really wonderful for the climate here. We're also looking at other, uh, what I call maritime time grapes, grapes that are from areas that are along coastal regions in Europe. And the reason that we're doing that in Virginia is because essentially Virginia is a coastal maritime region and it has a lot of humidity coming in from the Atlantic and coming in from the Chesapeake Bay. And you need grapes that have a memory of that humidity and know what to do with it Mm. or else they end up developing a lot of disease. So um, knowing what grapes to plant is very important. Knowing that there are certain European grapes that are going to work well, certain European grapes that are not. And then also understanding that we have a whole new category. It's actually not a new category. It's a very old category that we're newly getting excited about again called hybrid grape varieties. And those are grape varieties that have both European as well as American indigenous genetics in them. Bringing some of these hybrid grape varieties to the table, I think, is also going to be a way for Virginia winemaking to move forward because it allows us to work with grapes that, again, have a memory of the climate here because they have that American genetics in them. Mm. And so in that way, they are easier to farm and sometimes more appropriate for for the climate here. I love that phrasing, the memory of that humidity. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, once you've ex- experienced uh, Virginia in the summertime, you never right. forget it. <laughs> <laughs> right. It also makes me think about climate change and, and how does that affect what people can grow where? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing with climate change is that Virginia is in like a, a little bit of a tenuous situation because it's like we're just starting to find our footing and yet also feeling so much pressure to stay ahead of all of the sort of the the waves that are coming through with the changes of the climate. Mm. Um, you know, Virginia, at least in this moment, can be a hot growing season, but it's also a little bit shorter than other places. And it, the most important thing to know is it's punctuated by a lot of rain events. The skies will just open up in the middle of the summer right. and a deluge of water will come down. <laughs> and that needs to be balanced appropriate for the grapes to ripen well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we tend to have hurricane and rain pressure during harvest, which can be really tricky Mm. as hurricanes become stronger. Mm -hmm. um, That sometimes will bring us even more rain during harvest. But again, that's where your choice of grape variety becomes very important. For instance, Petit Mansang can handle a lot of rain during the picking season, during the harvest season. So Mm -hmm. looking for these nice, thick-skinned grapes that can handle rain is really important um, during that last that last chapter of growth. Mm. That's fascinating. Yeah. Just to hear it all put together. Yeah. So what are some of the Virginia wines that you're really excited about right now? I am very, very excited about Petit Mansang because I love a grape from France called Chenin Blanc. Chenin Blanc is a grape that you find in the Loire Valley, and it makes wines under the appellation names of Savagnier and Vouvray and Montlouis. And these wines tend to be very food-friendly. They tend to be very vibrant and tend to be full of just really delicious fruit flavors. And Petit Mansang, while an entirely different grape, I think does a lot of that for Virginia. Um, you can make a lot of different styles of wine. You can make very dry Petit Mansang, or you can make Petit Mansang that has some sugar, or you can to make Petit Mansang, which is like a full-on dessert wine, like unctuous and um, viscous and, and for the end of your meal. A lot of times when I'm trying to win people over to Virginia wine, that's the grape that I lead with because, mm-hmm. again, it reminds 
reminds me of some of the most dynamic wines coming from places like France, but also I know how well it pairs with food. Hmm. So Petit Monsang is just wonderful for that. But I mean, I'm always a lover of Cabernet Franc when grown in the right place from Virginia. Cab Franc from the Shenandoah Valley, particularly on the limestones, limestone soils of the Shenandoah Valley and, and the higher altitudes of the Shenandoah Valley makes really interesting wine kind of supple and velvety and a little bit luscious for a red wine. This is not French Cap Franc. This is not the type of Cap Franc you find in the Loire Valley or Bordeaux. And this is actually a much more subtle wine than you usually find in Cap Franc from California. So what I often say about Virginia wine is if you think about California wine and you think about European wine, Mm -hmm. Virginia almost geographically is halfway between Europe Mm -hmm. and California and stylistically can be sort of the same. So my last question is, you mentioned that Virginia wine is really tied to the America story. Mm -hmm. But what is the story that Virginia wine tells about itself? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think Virginia wine can tell a story about how we were all stronger when we worked together, Mm -hmm. how we're all stronger when we have unique viewpoints and we honor each other's individual viewpoints. You know, I think sometimes people feel with wine, oh, this is good wine and this is bad wine and Mm -hmm. this is the wine I should be drinking and this is the wine I shouldn't be drinking. I'm just happy for people to be drinking wine because, you know, wine helps us all slow down a bit. It just Mm -hmm. helps you to contemplate and kind of stay rooted in the present moment. Um, It makes you savor, you know, Mm -hmm. and sometimes you're savoring what's in the glass. Sometimes you're savoring the person who's sitting in front of you. Sometimes you're savoring what's on your plate. And I think Virginia is just uniquely um, set up to um, to bring everybody together and to bring wine down to earth. Lee Campbell is a celebrated sommelier and partner at Commonwealth Crush, an urban winery and incubator based in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. It's the holiday season, and not everyone has everything they need to make ends meet. In Richmond, Virginia, the RVA community fridges are helping to bridge that gap. There's a lot of people who already have food pantries and give already, but like when you actually uh, hear from the community members and you chat to them about like what they need or how their experiences are at the other places, uh, a lot of the issues either are They get the same exact things over and over again, and it's never fresh produce, and or they have to provide a lot of information that either they don't want to give up and or don't have, so they also can't get it and it's still restricted. This is Taylor Scott. This all started because Taylor didn't want to throw away extra tomatoes that she had grown. Just had too many tomatoes. Sounds way less grand than than it may appear to be. So she created the RVA community fridges during the pandemic. She put the tomatoes in the first refrigerator outside of a local plant shop. Then, more businesses started reaching out, offering space outside of their doors. And it's just grown from there. Someone literally two weeks ago was just telling me how, during the pandemic, their children were literally being fed from food from the fridges. And I'm, like, mind blown by that concept. I live in Richmond, and I've really enjoyed seeing the community fridges take off. It's a great example of what mutual aid can look like. No one has to prove that they're in need. You just walk up, get what you need, leave what you can. 
I love seeing the posts on Instagram from farmers, chefs, and just everyday people saying, hey, just dropped off seven dozen eggs at the fridge in Church Hill, or hey, just dropped off a couple rotisserie chickens at the Hall Street refrigerator. There are now 13 refrigerators all over Richmond, and they're stocked with fresh foods, ingredients, and sometimes even prepared meals that anyone can just walk up to and take. You can literally go to the fridges any day of the week, any time of the day. Like, we don't care. You don't have to tell us. Like, you can just take what you need, give what you can, any day of the week. Community fridge programs like the one in Richmond have sprung up all over the country as an alternative to traditional food pantries. RVA Community Fridges is hoping to expand their work. They recently secured a brick-and-mortar building in Richmond's north side, where Taylor and her team hope to create prepared meals and host events in this space. For more information or to get involved, check out rvacommunityfridges.com. Now, we're headed up 64 West to an eight-course meal that celebrates three centuries of Southern women's chefs. Look, there's something we have to address about colonial-era cookbooks. The mistresses, whose names were on the byline, absolutely were not in the kitchen, except to supervise. But tracking down information about the actual kitchen geniuses behind those cookbooks is tough. Lenny Sorensen is a culinary historian and chef. She hosts historic dinners at her house that bring to life the brilliance and creativity of the enslaved and free women who really threw down in the kitchen. I spoke with her just a few hours before she hosted an eight-course dinner focused on three centuries of Southern women chefs. So, Lenny, this past weekend you had a dinner that celebrated three centuries of women chefs. What was on the menu? Well, the three centuries covered the 18th century, the 19th century, and the early 20th century. And my goal is to emphasize the creativity and work of the Black women chef-slash-cooks who worked in antebellum and postbellum kitchens. You know, I'm, I'm, while I'm interested in the dishes and I'm interested in the menu— I'm primarily interested in the people and the context. So we started with a tomato soup, and it is a riff on uh, Harriet Horry's description of how to preserve tomatoes for winter from 1770 from Charleston, South Carolina. She gives us clear directions on how to do it. So it's a tomato soup. The book that in which it is part also has a description of the four women in this particular South Carolina kitchen, which is just really rare and wonderful. She's writing a letter to her mother, and she says that Marianne is a head cook and roasts poultry in absolute perfection. Marianne also makes the punch. That means she's being trusted to open bottles of liquor and combine them and to squeeze the lemon juice and do all of the stuff. Daphne works with Marianne. Uh, She is being set to learn uh, all she can of cooking. We have old Ebba, and we don't know how old she is. She fattens poultry to a nicety. At that time, nicety meant persnickety, precise, and even a little critical. As in Mary Randall says about picking beans, you want the nicest beans. Mm-hmm. When you're picking greens for the lettuce, you want to wash them to a nicety. I mean, don't get any grit in there, honey. We mm-hmm. then have young Ebba. And while she is there, she is to learn what she can of cookery and of washing. And she's to handle all of the scullion duties, which is scrubbing Uh, pots and pans and keeping the kitchen clean and following the directions of the cook. So now you've got these four women working in this kitchen. I mean, heck, I you know, I mean, for most people, having four women in a kitchen means it's Thanksgiving and, you know, you're really putting out some food. The salad course uh, contains a tarragon, homemade tarragon dressing that comes from an 1824 cookbook that I use a great deal. 
And we know that tarragon dressing was Thomas Jefferson's favorite salad dressing. So mm-hmm. it's come a, from a cookbook written by Thomas Jefferson's daughter's sister-in-law. So it's one of those complicated mm-hmm. elite families. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was uh, Mary Randolph, right? Mary Randolph and her Virginia housewife. Mm. Even though her cooks are unnamed, we get a sense of what the cooks are familiar with, the harvesting, the preserving, the making, because this tarragon dressing didn't come from a grocery store. Someone had to make it. So I make mine so that it can be, we have an example of what would that taste like? How would that, how would that do? It's a lovely dressing, and everybody who really likes it, and I really like it. So the salad is dressed with that. That is a fricasseed catfish that comes from Melinda Russell, a very exciting, immediately postbellum black cook who self-published a recipe book in 1866 and is now considered at this point to be the first African-American woman cookbook writer. Mm. And just just a very simple, cream-based, very lightly seasoned It isn't really fancy or highly spiced, but I certainly think that in her day, the catfish were probably pretty big and spectacular, and I would love to have a great big catfish to do it to. I just use very small pieces. Melinda is writing for professional cooks and caterers and bakers, of which she is one. So she's writing cryptic recipes Hmm. that assume that the cook who's using it, it's a guideline. Mm -hmm. And, of course, she has also this larger purpose, which is, as she tells us, to raise money to be able to go back to eastern Tennessee to raise her son. Her son is apparently disabled. We don't know by what polio, perhaps, or tuberculosis. These were very common ailments. So she has her ambition, she has her goal, but she has this intellectual focus as well. She's talking to professionals, and the recipes really reflect that. Contrast the incredible detail of Mary Randolph's cookbooks, why and how, and how to judge a barrel of flour, and she tells you the basics. You know, she tells you how to clean beef hooves to make gelatin. How to cure herring. You take your barrel of brine left over from the winter's curing of the beef. The beef went in at some time in the late fall, let's say. It sat in the salt uh, in the brine while you ate it and took it out and whatever. By the end of the season, which would be spring sometime, the barrel is empty of meat, but it's full of brine. Mm. Okay. Now it's the running of the herring. It's a seasonal thing. Mm -hmm. And she says you take those barrels full of that brine And you take it down to the shore, because it's the fish run, and they're bringing it into the shore, and they're throwing the herrings up on the shore, and the guys that are manning the barrels, you're going to throw them live into that brine. And why? Because it's salty, and the fish are going to gulp it and start curing from the inside. And then you begin the next steps, and she tells you what those are. How, how you're going to salt them and, mm-hmm. and cure them and use them or whatever. And she has recipes there, too. Mm-hmm. So she's very detailed. She knows food. Her enslaved cooks know food. Mm-hmm. How this food goes with that food, the flow of the menus through the season, all of that stuff. And then we get a little confirmation of that from Melinda Russell, 1866. Melinda Russell tells us that while she was born free— because her grandmother was emancipated at some point. Her mother was born free. Melinda learned to cook from a colored woman named Fanny Stewart, she tells us, somewhere in eastern Tennessee along uh, across the Virginia border. Mm -hmm. And she says, I keep my kitchen according to the Virginia housewife. Mm. So in 1866, Mary Randolph's Virginia housewife continues to be well-known, It's being used by women like Melinda Russell as a guide, as a teaching tool, as it's kind of an encyclopedia. Boy, I can't remember how much it, whatever. And so when she writes her little cryptic 
kind of cookbook and is talking to other caterers and people, she assumes they know what she's talking about when she says that. Because she doesn't say Mary Randall. She says, according to the Mm. Virginia housewife. And so in that, we can see the ongoing impact of the cooks in Mary Randolph's kitchens. Mm. Mary Randolph has a recipe for roasting a shoat. A shoat is a small pig, which would be anywhere from 20 to 40 pounds. Well, I neither have a shoat, nor do I have room to roast a shoat of that size (laughs) as much as I would want to. So I have, I have, um, I hesitate to say invented, but I have, I've worked (laughs) out a way of having a, a rolled pork roast that is very juicy and very, very luscious uh, an homage to to mm-hmm. to her. This very richly richly seasoned, savory, uh, very crispy on the outside uh, roast, which smelled what, amazing, doesn't it? It just it makes the whole amazing. house just just yeah. I just walk through the house just sniffing, and the crackling was like oh, this yeah, is so delightful, yeah, really. And so, to accompany that is rice, and I uh, have been using. Anson Mills of Charleston, South Carolina, gold rice, because these are places, there's a number of different mills now in that area that are growing these heirloom, older rices that are that are really lovely, that um, you know people should know about. I, I love rice, and I cook a lot of different kinds of rice, and I always have a, a lot of rice in my pantry, but this is really special. And it's nice because it would be very, it would be very likely the rice that Mary Randolph had available to her. Hmm. So it's got that historic uh, edge to it. The veg is <laughs> um, parsnips when they cook; they're very, very sweet, and carrots with uh, honey and butter together, and they make a nice kind of sweet counterpoint to the pork. And especially what I find lovely is that many people, while they've heard of parsnips, have never had a parsnip. And so I get to introduce people to a, you know, late summer, early fall, winter vegetable that people might be able to say, oh, well, I had that. I, I'll cook that. Mm-hmm. And they're a lovely vegetable to know. People in the past would boil them and puree them and to serve them with butter. I keep them in sticks because I kind of want them to be distinct uh, so people can really get a distinct difference between the carrot and the parsnips and, you know, kind of how they interact. Mm -hmm. Part of that table setting for the entree is Abby Fisher's 1879 sauce. It's a plum-based sauce that's just really quite lovely, and it's wonderful with pork or chicken or meat and meats of any kind. And she was an incredible woman who was born in, in an enslaved community in Mobile, Alabama, and then somehow in one of those marvelous American stories of travel across the size of this great country ends up in Oakland, California. That's an incredible journey. Mm. And she's proud of many things. She's proud of her pickles and her jams and her jellies, (laughs) but she also tells us she is very proud. She and her husband have raised 13 children to adulthood. What an incredible task to achieve. She, She tells us that. But what's really quite wonderful about her story is that she can neither read nor write. But she has obviously created a group of customers who love her stuff, who must be buying her stuff and telling people about her. And and if all of it is as good as her sauce, uh, i got to tell you, she really knew what she was talking about. Mm. They persuade her to enter some of her things in the 1879 Sacramento State Fair. And she wins hmm. awards. I mean, so I know she would be proud. Her, fa- you know, her family would be proud. Her husband would be proud, and her community would be proud. And these women who have sponsored her would also be proud. Mm-hmm. And then they create for her, with her, a cookbook. That's how we have her cookbook. So for a long time, she was considered to be the first African American cookbook written by a black woman. Plus, like I say, the sauce itself is stands on its own. It is mm-hmm. really a lovely thing, and it goes so beautifully with pork. 
I serve as well with that homemade applesauce, which I make from local apples, and sometimes pickled beets if I have gotten enough beets, which I make pickled beets. I also serve usually my um, my recipe for sweet pickles. It's a very spicy sweet pickle that I learned over 45 years ago from my eldest sister-in-law, who's going to be 100 years old on the 12th of November in South Dakota. I want to bring in the fact that, you know, we have these old traditions. We bring in some new traditions. You know, here's this uh, Dane-Norwegian-Swede prairie woman, but Mm -hmm. she's been making this fabulous thing for far longer than 45 years. She used to make them for her dad, and he loved them because they're refrigerator pickles. Mm -hmm. And he would brag, (laughs) Viola brought me a gallon of pickles. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so that food as gifts, food as skill, Mm -hmm. food as... A ref, you know, reflecting accomplishment are kind of all woven into this meal. We moved for dessert to Edna Lewis, who is my, you know, my absolute favorite, 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 favorite. I mean, I love all of the the women that I talk mm-hmm, about, mm-hmm. but Edna Lewis is my very, very favorite. Some part of it because... Uh, I was given her book when I was living on a farm and milking cows and having a huge garden and butchering animals and cooking on a wood cook stove. And so her taste of country cooking with its reminiscence of her her growing up and her mother and her grandmothers and her aunts in this very rural part of Virginia was just fantastic because I could immediately, first of all, I could immediately relate. Mm-hmm. But also I could immediately feel totally confident to cook these things with the level of technology that I had. Mm. You know what I mean? When she says rich milk, I know she means milk that just came out of the cow. And I'm milking five cows, so hey. You, know, <laughs> you I've got, got it. Yeah, yeah. Um, deeply inspiring. Over and above just the immense loving and gracious way she tells the story. Uh, I'm not a very sentimental person, but I must admit, with that book, I, I can be. But she tells the story of, of rural mid-Virginia in this very um, not real sentimental. She's just frank about what it is they did and then how it is they did it and kind of why it is they did it. And she doesn't kind of plead any special pleading she is proud of her ancestors. She is proud of their farm. She is proud of what they do. And she wants to share that with us with that same level of calm pride. And so that is the last dish. And we make, and I make bread pudding because Edna's bread pudding is bar none it. Everybody loves it. It's fun to make. It's really luscious and full of nutmeg and eggs and rich milk and and butter and all that nice stuff. And I present a large bowl of whipped cream on the table for people to decorate their Mm. bread pudding should they care. Because you can never have too much whipped cream is my philosophy. And that's our our meal. How... Did these enslaved and free black cooks, how were they trained? How did they know how to do all of this? Apprenticeship in almost all activities, be it learning to pick cotton, learning uh, to be a cook, all these things were learned at the side of people who knew who were doing it. And you might start very young, doing very small parts of it. That's what scullions did in kitchens. You were in this kitchen and it was... Uh, wood in and ashes out and water in and slops out and veggies in and scrub this and stir that. And then as you got a little more experience and could be shown to be, you know, receptive and responsible, uh, here, break these eggs into this bowl and beat them up or whatever. The cook was kind of the director of this, this this process. The mistress, of course, was the ultimate uh, determiner of who who got brought into the kitchen. Okay, so let's look at these uh, assistants in the cooks, second cooks and the cooks themselves. They're starting again, eight, nine, ten years old. And so by the time they're 16, 17, 18 years old, they've been doing this for almost a decade. 
and they've been learning constantly. Under a very uh, unique uh, pressure. Uh, tr- yeah, under yeah, under a really high, high pressure situation. Uh, they've been winnowed out, those who can't who can't uh, get with the pressure, who can't operate in that setting. Uh, people who are, you know, too giddy or too thoughtless or too, you know, who waste things or who can't be dependent on not burning stuff or, you know, they're going to get winnowed out so that by the time, you know, that you can have a dependable staff because at two or three or four every day this Mm -hmm. meal has to come to the table and it must be as excellent as the house mistress can present because that's her job as producer Mm. to present a lovely home, fine food, uh, gracious accommodation in the name of and support of her elite husband. That's her Mm. job is to do that. Lenny Sorensen is a culinary historian and chef. To learn more about her dinners, visit indigohouse.us. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Dara, Jamal Milner, and me, Lauren Francis. Our executive producer is Sarah McConnell. Aviva Costo is our intern. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Lauren Francis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>